Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by an educational grant from Abbott Laboratories, Gilead Sciences Medical Affairs, and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Today's program is the companion activity to the February 2012 E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Newsletter. Our topic is the role of exercise and physical activity in optimizing CF outcomes. Our guest today is Dr. Greg Wells from the Hospital for Sick Children at the University of Toronto. This activity has been developed for physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, dietitians, and physical therapists caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. The accreditation and credit designation statements can be found at the end of this podcast. For additional information about accreditation, Hopkins policies, expiration dates, and to take the post-test to receive credit online, please go to our website newsletter archive www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org and click on the March 2012 podcast link. Learning objectives for this audio program are that after participating in this activity, the participant will demonstrate the ability to describe exercise interventions suitable for prepubescent children with cystic fibrosis, differentiate between appropriate exercise interventions for adolescent female and male patients with CF, and discuss the characteristics of exercise and physical activity interventions for adult patients with CF. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the Cystic Fibrosis Review. On the line, we have with us our February newsletter issue author. Dr. Greg Wells is an Associate Scientist and Assistant Professor of Physiology and Experimental Medicine, Faculty of Kinesiology and Physical Education at the Hospital for Sick Children at the University of Toronto. Dr. Wells has disclosed that he has no financial interest or relationship with a commercial entity whose products or services are relevant to the content of his presentation. He's also indicated that his presentation today will not include references to unlabeled or unapproved uses of any drugs or products. Dr. Wells, welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Thanks very much, Bob. I'm very happy to be here to do the podcast today. In your newsletter issue, you reviewed recent research on how physical activity may be able to improve outcomes in patients with cystic fibrosis. Uh, What I'd like to do today is to get into that topic in more depth to further explore just what clinicians can do to increase their patient's exercise frequency and capacity. Uh, So if you would, Dr. Wells, start us off with a patient description. Our first patient is a young boy with cystic fibrosis, prepubescent, and he's a very good young athlete. It's interesting to look at children with cystic fibrosis because they are very different than adults with cystic fibrosis, and we have to consider children differently from adolescents and from adults. As an exercise physiologist advising clinicians, what are the key factors they need to be aware of when recommending exercise for children before puberty? Well, the first thing to consider for clinicians when they're working with children with CF is what we call peak height velocity or the onset of peak height velocity. That's the growth spurt that begins to initiate a number of different changes in the physiology of the young individual that we're dealing with. Interestingly enough, their physiology with regards to exercise changes considerably right in and around that time. Their lungs begin to grow, the heart begins to grow, the limbs begin to lengthen. As a result, their ability to exercise changes as well. And there's a number of internal physiological things that change with regards to aerobic metabolism, anaerobic metabolism, and strength and conditioning, all of which can be taken advantage of if we're aware of the timing of the changes in these different elements. So it's very important to consider children before the onset of their growth spurt and then adolescents after the onset of that growth spurt. Children can be given very specific things to do that can help them as individuals and also as patients with CF. 
the concept of stable growth rate. Uh, talk to us about that and how it applies here. Well, there are two significant growth spurts that children go through. First of all, from zero to two years of age, and then in and around puberty. In between those times, between the ages of two and approximately, let's say, 10 for girls, 11 for boys, and that's very individual as to when and someone will enter into the second growth spurt, obviously, there's a period of stable growth. And the wonderful thing about that stable growth period is that boys and girls are very similar physiologically. So the exercise recommendations that you give to children can be consistent from boys to girls. And because they have a very stable growth rate, their ability to learn sports skills is excellent. So you can have children participating in sports, learning, improving, and feeling like they're having a successful experience all the way through that period from two right through to 10. As soon as they enter into that second growth spurt, bodies begin to change and their ability to do sports changes as well. But right through that period, we can confidently give boys and girls very consistent, similar recommendations for what they should be doing in terms of exercise. For children of this age, exercise is really playing. So give us a general overview, if you would, about the nature of children's play. Well, if you look at a group of children playing in a playground, you'll see that they adopt an interesting pattern. They'll do short sprints and then walk around and recover, or do a burst of climbing and then stop and rest. And it's very different from the way that adults might exercise, where we might go for a run, or we might go to the gym and do some work on a treadmill, or we might go into the gym and do an hour of weights, for example. Children love to play anaerobically. They love to sprint, they love to do explosive movements, and then they'll walk around and recover. The wonderful thing about this is that it has powerful positive effects on the human physiology of anaerobic metabolism and also aerobic metabolism inside the muscle. It's the perfect recommendation for children with cystic fibrosis because it targets various different energy systems within the muscle and also the cardiovascular system, which delivers oxygen on the aerobic side. So by being aware of the nature of children's play, we can make effective recommendations for children with cystic fibrosis. Well, now, how does the nature of children's play specifically apply to children with CF? Well, we've talked about the nature of children's play and how it activates both the aerobic and the anaerobic system. The reason why it's critical is because children can engage in play all day long. And habitual physical activity and the amount and intensity of that habitual physical activity is critical. Because researchers at the Hospital for Sick Children have identified that the more habitual physical activity that a child is involved in, the slower their rate of lung function decline. It's not just the traditional thinking around exercise or training. It's actually the total volume of movement that a child does over the course of the day that seems to have a protective effect for long-term lung function in children with CF. Talk to us about some specific exercise recommendations that can be given to pediatric patients. As a clinician, we should feel that it's safe to recommend physical activity, exercise, and training for children with mild to moderate lung disease. What I would like clinicians to consider is that we want to provide children with the opportunity to do as many different things as possible, to keep it interesting for them, to keep it changing, to continue to develop them as young athletes that can do all activities. We're talking about walking, running, jumping, throwing, playing, and swimming. The critical thing that we're looking for here is consistent participation. We want children to be involved in physical activities for at least 60 minutes a day. That might seem like a lot, but this is what we know is important for maintaining health in children. And interestingly enough, because they're younger and their bodies are adapting in a certain way to growth, we've also found that intensity has to be relatively high. Like when children play in a playground, there's bursts of activity followed by rest. 
We shouldn't be afraid of recommending intense activities like soccer or basketball to children with cystic fibrosis. The intensity is critical. And we shouldn't be afraid to shy away from anaerobic activities either, anaerobic activities being those where there is 10 to 45 seconds of really intense exercise followed by long periods of two to three minutes of rest. Those types of activities are perfect for children because it mirrors the nature of children's play. There's a variety of different things that they can do, all of which have a positive effect upon their overall health and lung function. Very interesting, Dr. Wells, but let's look at it from the other side, at circumstances where exercise would not be recommended for these pre-adolescents. Well, there's two times that I think we need to be careful when we're prescribing exercise to all patients with CF. In keeping it simple, we'll be able to remember it for everybody. The first time is doing acute pulmonary exacerbations. When a patient is sick, sicker than normal, and there's been a precipitous drop in FEV1 at a specific moment in time, we do not want to be recommending intense activities during that time. At those moments, we're looking for just maintenance of some base level of movement. The other time that we have to be very careful with patients with CF is during exercise in the heat. The sweat glands in children and patients with CF are different. Patients lose more sodium and chloride than healthy people do. So the potential for becoming dehydrated or not maintaining their electrolyte balance in people when they're exercising in the heat is great when someone has CF. So those are the two moments we have to be careful of, acute pulmonary exacerbations and also exercise in the heat. Thank you, Dr. Wells. Let's move up the age range now and look at exercise recommendations for adolescents. Well, the second case I'd like to bring to your attention is a young girl, 15 years of age, with cystic fibrosis, reasonable FEV1, above 85%, still healthy and participating in lots of activities at her school. You've described an adolescent female. Now, aside from the obvious ones, are there major differences between adolescent females and males? There are differences that we have to consider for males and female adolescents. Two reasons are most important. First of all, related to cystic fibrosis. We know that adolescent girls with cystic fibrosis are at increased risk of a precipitous decline in FEV1. There's a critical period for adolescent girls in terms of maintenance of their health as patients with CF. The other thing we have to consider is that boys and girls during their adolescent years begin to differentiate in terms of their internal physiology with regards to strength, anaerobic function, and aerobic function. For example, girls begin to plateau in terms of their VO2 peak, their cardiopulmonary exercise testing results in and around 14, where boys continue to increase right through 18. So it is important to consider boys and girls separately once they reach adolescence. Aerobic training for adolescent girls with CF. Now, now that would be a recommendation, wouldn't it? It is a very important recommendation for girls with CF, mainly because aerobic capacity begins to plateau around 14 for girls. And also, there are a number of benefits of aerobic training for children with CF. Because aerobic training or aerobic exercise like running or swimming, even sports like soccer, they push the physiology of the oxygen transport system. And that involves lungs, heart, blood, as well as muscles. So it has a very powerful effect on the entire oxygen transport pathway. There also has been demonstrated positive effects upon increasing mucus clearance in children who participate in aerobic activities. In fact, you can increase daily mucus clearance by up to 30%. There is something that we need to be careful of, though, especially with adolescent girls with CF. We know that maintenance of body composition is critical. We do want to maintain a certain level of percent body fat in patients with CF. And when we do aerobic training, those percentages begin to decrease. So it's critical to support exercise recommendations for adolescents with CF with an increased 
consumption of calories across proteins, carbohydrates, and fats to be able to support that effectively. Uh, Dr. Wells, let me ask you to go a little deeper into the importance of nutrition for these adolescent female patients. Well, exercise demands energy. The way that we get energy into our bodies to fuel exercise is obviously through nutrition. And of course, maintaining proper body composition in patients with CF is critical to long-term health. We want to be maintaining lean body mass. We also want to be maintaining percentage body fat. So I would like young athletes or young children, adolescents who are participating in activity, especially those children with CF, to have increased amounts of complex carbohydrates like whole wheat pasta or whole wheat bread after exercise to help refuel their muscles. I want them to be having protein to help their muscles and different body parts to rebuild themselves. But I also want them consuming good fats like avocado or coconut or olive oil. Those sorts of foods help the nervous system to repair itself and provide a base level of energy to help support the increased levels of physical activity, as well as to maintain proper body composition in patients with CF. Thank you. Uh, Talk to us now, if you would, about some of the actual exercises you would recommend for aerobic exercise training. Well, aerobic exercise training is really interesting. Even though it's aerobic, and we, we often think of that as sort of long runs or long bike rides, there are a number of different things that we can do. We can do aerobic-based type activities. That's something like going for a hike. That's something like walking. That's general level of activity in our lives, walking to and from school, light, easy activities over an extended period of time. That has very powerful effects upon the oxygen transport system and can be very healthy for children with CF. We can then take it to a slightly more intense level where we do something called interval training, where someone might do a block of exercise, two to three minutes in length, and then a shorter period of rest in between. That might be something like running during a track practice where you do a couple laps of the track and then walk one, or where we would go to swimming and do some laps, take a rest, do some laps, take a rest. That would be considered interval training, slightly higher intensity, and a little bit more rest integrated into those. Examples of some activities or sports that can place an emphasis on aerobic capacity are swimming, soccer, cross-country running, Even things like yoga can be beneficial because there's an elevated level of activity for an extended period of time. All of those can be very powerful and beneficial for children with CF, especially adolescent females. Let me ask you about other activities, particularly anaerobic activities. I'll give you some recommendations for those in these adolescent girls. Well, anaerobic activities can be beneficial for girls with CF as well. Let's take an example of something like soccer or basketball or volleyball, very popular sports to be involved in. When girls are involved with anaerobic training, actually when boys are involved in anaerobic training as well, believe it or not, there's an increased adherence to those training programs. In a study that was done on anaerobic training in children with CF, the adherence rate during the study was 98%. That's almost unheard of. So children love being involved in those types of activities. The other benefit of doing anaerobic type activities is that during the recovery period, let's say that you sprint for the ball in soccer, during the walking period afterwards, The aerobic system is what is responsible for recovery. So the entire oxygen transport system, blood, lungs, heart, muscle, are all being stressed during that time. So it's a very comprehensive approach to training. And because of the high adherence, I really like recommending these types of activities for adolescent females because their participation in physical activity might be lower than boys overall. So it's a very useful tip for people to consider in this specific population. Let me sidebar a note to our listeners that the study Dr. Wells referred to was described in the newsletter issue. All right, Dr. Wells, summarize for us, if you would, your key points about adolescent females and exercise. 
Well, for adolescent females with cystic fibrosis, we have to consider three critical things. First of all, aerobic training is very powerful and effective for this particular group. It improves and slows the rate of lung function decline in this population. Secondly, we're looking to maintain increased amounts of attention to nutrition to support the increased physical activity in a healthy manner. And finally, incorporating some sort of anaerobic recommendations as well, because that helps with adherence, which is critical for adolescent females with CF. And we'll return in a moment with Dr. Greg Wells from the Hospital for Sick Children at the University of Toronto. Hello, I'm Megan Ramsey, nurse practitioner and clinical coordinator for adults at the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I am one of the program directors of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. These podcast programs will be provided on a regular basis to enable you to receive additional current, concise, peer-reviewed information through podcasting, a medium that is gaining wide acceptance throughout the medical community. In fact, today, there are over 5,000 medical podcasts. To receive credit for this educational activity and to review Hopkins policies, please go to our website at www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. This podcast is part of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review, a bi-monthly email-delivered program available by subscribing. Each issue reviews the current literature on focused topics important to clinicians caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for Physicians and by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing for Nurses. Subscription to E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is provided without charge, and nearly a thousand of our colleagues have already become subscribers. The topic-focused literature reviews help them keep up-to-date on issues critical to maintaining the quality of care for their patients. For more information, to register to receive E-Cystic Fibrosis Review without charge and to access back issues, please go to www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. Welcome back to our March 2012 E-Cystic Fibrosis Review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. Our guest is Dr. Greg Wells from the Faculty of Kinesiology and Physical Education at the Hospital for Sick Children at the University of Toronto. And our topic is the role of exercise and physical activity in optimizing CF outcomes. We've been discussing how the information in our February newsletter issue can be applied in the exam room. Now, so far, we've talked about prepubescent children and adolescent girls. And Dr. Wells, you described some distinctions between adolescent girls and boys regarding CF and exercise. So let me ask you to focus now on adolescent males. The next patient that I'd like to bring up is a 17-year-old boy. He has moderate FEV1 of around 70% FEV1 and a lower lean body mass than we would normally expect in a boy of 17 years of age. All right. Now, I think we're all going to assume that exercise is also important for these adolescent males with cystic fibrosis. Uh, So talk to us a little bit about that, if you would. There's two pieces of the puzzle for adolescent males. The first one is maintenance of aerobic capacity. Aerobic capacity, as we would measure with VO2 peak or VO2 max during a cardiopulmonary exercise test, will naturally continue to increase from 12 to 18 in boys just because of growth. But that doesn't mean that we can't train it as well. We know that VO2 max is related to FEV1 and to survival in patients with CF. So the higher we can get that VO2 max, according to some research that has been presented in the newsletter, the better that patient's outcome is going to be. 
The second piece of the puzzle, which we can talk about aerobic with adolescent boys with CF, is the strength training piece because boys naturally will gravitate towards that type of work because they feel like they like to increase their muscle mass. But this also has positive effects upon FEV1 for patients with CF. Let's take those puzzle pieces one at a time. The importance of aerobic capacity training. Well, aerobic capacity training, endurance training, may have positive effects upon exercise tolerance, increasing aerobic capacity, increasing respiratory muscle endurance, and even more importantly, perhaps, is an improvement in perceived health. Now, many of these positive benefits persist long after exercise interventions have ended. So it's critical that we give children, adolescents, ideas about what they can do, help them implement it at least once, and then we can expect these benefits to last for an extended period of time. And around exercise and aerobic exercise in particular, this is critical because the higher we can get that aerobic capacity, the better we can expect outcome to be over the long term because VO2 max has been shown to be related to survival in patients with CF. Very good. Now, the other piece. You noted that adolescent boys like to increase their muscle mass. Uh, talk to us about how that can directly benefit their CF condition. We've just completed a study at the Hospital for Sick Children that shows that upper body strength and anaerobic capacity are significantly related to FEV1, perhaps even more highly correlated than traditional cardiopulmonary exercise testing. This is critical for boys because boys in adolescence have natural increases in a hormone called testosterone. And testosterone helps us to layer on and increase muscle mass, which has also been shown to be related to positive health outcomes in patients with CF. If we can keep lean body mass up in this population, we can expect improvements and maintenance of health around lung function for an extended period of time. Dr. Wells, discuss the benefits of strength training for adolescent males a little bit more for us, if you would. Sure. Well, strength training increases lean body mass, especially around muscle mass. The reason why it does that is because when we get into the gym and we lift some weights, that results in micro tears in the muscle tissue. This stimulates the body to build new proteins in the muscle tissue, new contractile proteins, and that causes hypertrophy or growth of the muscle tissue. This has positive benefits upon physiology, but importantly, especially for boys in this age group, it has benefits upon their psychology as well in a number of different areas. There's lots of very interesting research on the relationship between psychology and physiology. We don't have time to get into that now, but it's an exploding area to be aware of. The other real benefit we can see with strength training is that even though we get into the gym and let's say lift 12 repetitions of a weight, and that only takes us about a minute, the whole recovery period is also being done aerobically inside the body. So even though we're doing strength training, we're also targeting the aerobic system as well. So it's almost like fooling your patients into doing aerobic training by getting in and doing strength training, both of which have positive effects upon health and lung function in this population. So your specific exercise recommendations for young males with cystic fibrosis? Well, the exercise recommendations we might look at for an adolescent boy with cystic fibrosis would be to incorporate both aerobic endurance and strength training into a weekly plan. For example, we might do Monday, Wednesday, Friday cardiovascular exercise like soccer, basketball, alternated with Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, going to the gym and lifting some weights and to try to instill that hypertrophy response in the body. Those are movable. And as long as we're alternating between aerobic and strength, I think we can achieve everything that we're looking for in this population. Now, when we're doing that, it requires slightly different nutritional support. When we're doing aerobic endurance type activities, the body uses a lot of muscle glycogen. So the priority is on getting carbohydrates back into the system to refuel the muscles. 
When we're doing strength training, the priority shifts towards protein because we're looking to rebuild muscle tissue, and to do that, we need increased amounts of protein. Fish, meat, dairy products, even things like tofu that you might be able to get an adolescent boy to eat, possibly. But it's a very different approach to support each of those two things. If we do that effectively, their bodies will respond really, really well to the training stimulus. Under what circumstances would you not recommend exercise for these patients? Well, for adolescent males with cystic fibrosis, again, there's two periods where we need to be careful in terms of recommending exercise. First one is, as I mentioned before, acute pulmonary exacerbations. When the patients are sick, we default back to just low levels of habitual physical activity to keep them moving. Again, we need to be very careful of adolescent males because they may get into a sports situation. And when you're in a sports situation or playing with your friends, that may go on for many hours. We have to make sure that these young men are rehydrating effectively probably using a sport drink to make sure that their electrolyte levels stay at a healthy zone. Because patients with CF sweat out more electrolytes than healthy people do, they may be at risk of dehydration and hyponatremia. So having those sports drinks would be something to be considerate of when doing an extended period of exercise. And that may be something that young adolescent males may get into just because they love playing so much and may get out with their friends. Those same caveats, uh, those would apply to adolescent females as well, correct? They would. If we're aware for all patients with cystic fibrosis of the three items, acute pulmonary exacerbations, exercise in the heat, exercise for extended periods of time, if we're considerate of those three items, we can have people with cystic fibrosis, children, adolescents, and adults exercise safely. Well, thank you, Dr. Wells. Now, we've talked about pediatric patients. We've talked about both male and female adolescents. What about your recommendations for adults with cystic fibrosis? So describe a typical adult patient for us, if you would. Well, the patient that I'd like to bring up next is a male, 35 years of age, and still has relatively good lung function, 60% FEV1. So he's still relatively healthy. Obviously, this is an age that we need to be very considerate of because as patients with CF are managed well with nutrition, physical activity, and well-improved drugs and pharmaceutical therapies, we can expect people with CF to be living longer. So recommendations for this age group are really critical. Well, let's get directly into that then. What physical activity recommendations would you have for adults with cystic fibrosis? Well, the recommendations for adults revolve primarily around habitual physical activity. Habitual physical activity is positively associated with lung function, and patients with the lowest quartiles of habitual physical activity have the steepest rate of lung function decline. And habitual physical activity, because it's just part of your life and it's incorporated in every aspect of what you do, may be more effective than exercise programs. As we become adults, we have to work, we have to manage multiple different responsibilities. So incorporating exercise into life becomes challenging. Habitual physical activity becomes something that we have found is very effective for keeping movement integrated with people's lives. And that can be critical for adults with CF. And your specific exercise recommendations for these patients? Well, the nice thing about recommendations for adults is that it's important to be involved in as many different things as possible. We can look at the benefits of being involved in aerobic endurance type activities like walking, running, cycling, swimming. All of those have well-documented positive effects upon health. We can also incorporate anaerobic type activities, interval training and games like beach volleyball or soccer or any sort of sport that adults may choose to be involved with. Getting into the gym and doing strength training is also very important for this population. It's enjoyable. It can be fun. We encourage people to do that as well. The final piece of the puzzle, which we'd like to add for this group, adults, which is different from children and adolescents, is the importance of flexibility for overall health and 
maintenance of injury resistance and avoidance and those sorts of things. So it's the comprehensive approach is what we're looking for here. Aerobic, anaerobic strength and flexibility. I call that the aggregate of 1% gains. If we can incorporate just a little bit of physical activity across a wide spectrum of exercises on a daily basis, we can just keep ourselves physically healthy over an extended period of time. And that's the magic piece is just variety and consistency. The concept of concurrent exercise. Talk to us about that, if you would, please. Sure. Concurrent exercise is a new concept that actually comes out of high-performance sport, where athletes in specific sports that used to do just one type of activity are now adopting a wide range of activities to improve their performance in their specific sport of interest. We found that that has positive benefits as well for people across a spectrum of health levels from athletes down to healthy people to people with a chronic disease like cystic fibrosis. Concurrent training simply means we want to try to incorporate as many different things as possible in a week plan. For example, we might do some light cardiovascular activity on Monday morning. We might do yoga Monday evening and then do a strength training session on Tuesday. And something like that could be cycled through the rest of the week where activities are incorporated in a week plan. They're completely different. They target many different aspects of our physiology, but they're all done within a limited time frame. It keeps things interesting. It keeps people improving across a spectrum of their physiology. And we think that it may be very powerful for people with chronic disease because it has benefits across the entire pathway in the body, from heart to lung to blood, right through the muscle tissue, maybe even down into the bones. So it's a powerful new concept that we're recommending people consider. What type of nutritional support is particularly important for adult CF patients? Well, nutritional support when you're looking to incorporate physical activity and exercise into your life is critical. And with patients with CF, it's even more important because we have to maintain body composition around lean body mass and also percent body fat. So we're looking to maintain levels of carbohydrate intake to make sure that exercise is fueled properly, increasing levels of protein intake to make sure that when we do train, our body is able to rebuild itself effectively and also to increase the amount of fat that one's intaking, but good quality fats. That will help to improve the nervous system and also to maintain base levels of energy to fuel all these activities and health. So nutrition is absolutely critical for patients with CF, especially those who are incorporating exercise into their life. And the potential risks in recommending exercise for patients with CF? Well, there are several risks that we need to be aware of. The first one is we have to remember that the sweat glands are different from healthy people and that they excrete more sodium and chloride. So when patients with CF are exercising, we do want to be recommending sport drinks that are high in electrolytes. This becomes even more important when patients begin to exercise in the heat, for example, going for a run outdoors in the summer or doing prolonged activities. Now, to find anything prolonged as being longer than an hour at a time. That may lead to hyponatremia, and dehydration, we want to be very careful of that in patients with CF. Now, it is encouraging because patients with CF have pushed the limits of what humans are capable of. We have an example of Lisa Bentley, who is a professional Ironman triathlete, and she is doing exercise in the heat for prolonged periods of time in a healthy fashion, but her nutrition is absolutely perfect to be able to support that. So it is possible, we just have to do it very, very carefully. The other group that I'd like to bring to everyone's attention is patients with severe lung disease. And that would be defined as anyone with less than an FEV1 of 50%. Here we have to be extremely careful because patients run the risk of exercise-induced arterial hypoxemia or not being able to deliver enough oxygen to the blood. So with patients with severe lung disease, we do want to be very careful. It is possible to participate in activity, but we have to be careful when we're recommending it. 
There has also been a paper that suggested that there is potentially a risk of pneumothorax in this population. So again, being careful to incorporate exercise on a case-by-case basis, which the clinician can do individually with the patient, would be something to consider here. Thank you for those cases, doctor. I'd like to shift gears now and ask you to look to the future for us. What's the latest research telling us about exercise for patients with CF? Well, I believe the future is exciting because we have the potential to incorporate exercise into the lives of people with cystic fibrosis and to do so from a mechanistically justified perspective. We have new research that's just come out that demonstrates how the cystic fibrosis transmembrane regulator, the protein that's dysfunctional in CF, affects muscle tissue. And we also have really new interesting research that shows that in a seven-year follow-up, that FEV1, lung function, and habitual physical activity are closely related. And the people with the highest levels of physical activity have a 50% slower rate of decline of lung function. This is exciting new research that we'll be publishing shortly. The final piece which I'd like to introduce is that we've also found that there's a very close relationship between anaerobic function as well as strength and FEV1 in children with CF. This is in addition to the traditional perspective that cardiopulmonary exercise testing and VO2 max are closely related. So we may be able to provide new opportunities and new options for people with CF to incorporate exercise into their lives and to do so with the confidence that they're having an impact on their health over the long term. Well, thank you, doctor. Now, to wrap things up, I want to ask you very quickly to review what we've discussed today. So the exercise interventions for prepubescent children... Well, the exercise recommendations for prepubescent children revolve primarily around the nature of children's play. We can get children to participate in activities that mimic their type of play, bursts of short activity and recovery. I think that we've really helped them to incorporate an important aspect of exercise into their lives. Differentiating exercise recommendations between adolescent females and males. For adolescents with CF, we would like the girls to be participating in aerobic activities, as a foundation and for boys to be participating in strength activities as a foundation. The reason for that is that aerobic function plateaus in adolescent females, so incorporating aerobic function will continue to target the oxygen transport system, and incorporating strength is critical for boys, something that boys like to do, and it also has aerobic benefits, so it targets both positive changes in the muscle as well as the oxygen transport system. And the specific recommendations for adult patients with CF. The recommendations for adult patients with CF are to incorporate as much habitual physical activity into their life as possible. Habitual physical activity has been related to lung function, so it's critical that adult patients with CF do as many different things as they can as often as possible. Dr. Greg Wells from the Hospital for Sick Children at the University of Toronto, thank you for being part of this eCystic Fibrosis Review podcast. Well, thanks very much for having me on the show, and I really enjoyed it. This podcast is presented in conjunction with eCystic Fibrosis Review, a peer-reviewed CME and CNE-accredited literature review emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education to physicians. For physicians, the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this educational activity for a maximum of 0.75 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should only claim credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity.
For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hours. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eCystic Fibrosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine name implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information of specific drugs, combination of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indications, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. Thank you for listening. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by an educational grant from Abbott Laboratories, Gilead Sciences Medical Affairs, and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. This program is copyrighted with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.